it is a lot more than that. Your personal brand is literally everything you do and the complete impression that other people get about you as a result of that. Hi there. Hi, Dory. Yes. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good as gold here and you. Oh, very good. Thank you. I should ask too. Are you a Bernard or a Bernard, or how do you pronounce your name? <laughs> I keep I keep getting that question. I think that anyway, that sounds sweet in your ears. Pronounce it and we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, thank you. How do you how do you pronounce it? Bernard. Bernard. Yes. All right. Fantastic. Uh, uh, well, I wanna I wanna make sure I'm I'm doing it the right way. But thank you for your flexibility. <laughs> You're welcome. How about you? How do you pronounce your your full name? Dory Clark. Yes, exactly. Okay, I got it. Uh, Simple, sweet name. Thank you. Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana, bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. Okay, hi, Dory Clark. You're welcome to the Personal Branding Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Okay, Dory, I know you're the author of the book Reinventing You, and Associate Press and Fortune named you a recognized expert, and you've been writing for Forbes and other big publications, and I'm glad to have you here. The first question I want to really ask you, and in line before you expose us, you're a former presidential campaign spokeswoman. I was finding out who really was that. Yeah, thank you. I I was the spokesperson for Howard Dean in uh, the 2004 U.S. presidential election. So it was a very uh, exciting campaign. He obviously didn't win, but his uh, his campaign uh, historically, I think, was considered fairly significant for its uh, its rather meteoric rise in its early days and also its uh, innovative use of the internet. Okay, great. I think it's a rise to your PR work that you did. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, Dory, now tell us a little bit more about you and how you got into media and to branding and speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, part of my interest in writing the book, Reinventing You, came from the fact that my own professional trajectory was uh, very eclectic, I suppose you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started out after I finished graduate school. Um, I, I went to uh, get a master's degree in theology. And after I finished graduate school, I got a job as a political reporter at a newspaper. And that was a, a great job. I was very happy with it. But unfortunately, about a year into working there, I got laid off and needed to find something else to do. Um, it was a really hard time to find newspaper jobs because the industry had started to collapse. And so that was when I turned to work in politics. And so I was a press secretary on a gubernatorial campaign in Massachusetts. And then, as we mentioned, uh, I was a spokesperson on a presidential campaign for Howard Dean. Um, after that, I was uh, I, I was the executive director of a nonprofit. And uh, and then eight years ago, I launched my business doing marketing strategy consulting. So I, I've had a whole mix of different careers. And uh, all of them, I think, have been centered around the idea of how do you get your message out? How do you make sure that uh, people are properly understanding uh, what value you can bring, uh, whether it's as an individual, like I talk about in Reinventing You, or, you know, as a political campaign or, you know, your nonprofit cause. Uh, but it's really all about how you can break through and get noticed the right way. 
I have to break through and get noticed the right way. Let's pick it from your story and your journey. And look at current graduate students and uh, college students. After school, they are finding their feet, work to do, getting employed, what they need to do. Some of them want to pursue their dreams, their goals. How do they position themselves and transition from this period of not having a work, having a work, trying some few things? What do they need to do in that line with regard to what you did? You were fired from your job. You went out pursuing something on your own. Then you still want to get your boys out. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an especially important question that you ask uh, for recent college graduates and, and millennials who are trying to get the initial toehold and establish themselves professionally. But fortunately, it's it's actually easier in many ways to do it than ever uh, because you you really don't any longer have to wait to uh, to get chosen by other people. Um, you know, it's it's. A lot of people's view of this hasn't been updated in 10 or 20 years, but I mean, you know, it used to be questions of, oh, well, how do my, how do I make my resume look good? And, you know, things like that. And it's really irrelevant now. I mean, you know, your resume is fine, but, uh, your resume matters a lot less than what's about you on Google, you know, what people can find on their own. And so, when people are worried about, you know, should they use 12 point font or 10 point font? Uh, it's, it's, it's very much a side issue. Uh, if somebody wants to get their dream job or have their, their dream career, what I would suggest to them is that they literally just start doing it. And, uh, you know, that might sound a, a little bit, uh, crazy. You know, how do, how do you just start doing something, particularly if your dream job, let's say it's to be an executive at a top company or, or something like that. Um, you can't just march in and take over an office. But what you can do is you can begin to demonstrate your expertise and your command of the issues right away. And you can do that by, uh, by starting a blog or like you're doing here, have a podcast series, interview people. I mean, even if you literally feel like, gosh, I don't know very much about this industry. I'm just learning. You could start an interview series and interview people who do. And in the process, you're making great connections with them. You are learning through the conversations and by osmosis. And people will begin to say, oh, this is somebody that takes initiative. And that will put you so much farther ahead of people who are just endlessly, uh, you know, changing uh you know changing the lines on their resume and waiting for a call back well, so it's, it's about taking initiative and in this particular age people think that resumes or cvs are dead what do you do then in like thinking resumes is just uh as could be said is one of the things formalities to be done one need not focus on his brand and his business what how do a student transition position himself as a as a brand a more likable person for next job for next business for next piece what did they do well I, I think it's an important point um i mean you know people still require resumes i mean you know i i still i still have one on file <laughs> and uh, sometimes people ask for it and so i'll send it to them but it's it's not the the thing that i lead with mm. um what uh what i want to lead with is ex- actual examples of my work. 
Um, and you know, it's, it's funny. I remember when, when I was in college, which now I've graduated 15 plus years ago, um, they would always ask, uh, you know, if you're applying for a job for a writing sample and, you know, no, nobody really had writing samples back then. It was always this kind of crazy thing. Like, well, what do I give them? Do I give them a copy of my philosophy paper that I wrote about Immanuel Kant or something? <laughs> and, you know, you just, you don't know, but now you should have writing samples. You should be blogging. You should be creating content in some way. And that's what I would lead with because your, your resume, I mean, it's, it's a useful exercise to a certain extent because yeah, people do want to see what your experience is laid out. Um, and writing it down refreshes your memory about what you actually did, what you actually learned. But what's a lot more important than that is two things. One, is you assimilating the information that's on your resume into a really coherent narrative statement for yourself. Okay, well, what did you do? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, what did you learn from what you did? And how will you bring that learning to the next thing that you're hoping to do? That's what you need to be able to tell them, and that's what they will remember if you do it right. And then the second thing, as we discussed previously, is just getting out there and, you know, applying things in, in the real world, uh, you know, writing things. If you, if you want to learn about something, I mean, you know, there are going to have to be some sacrifices in the beginning. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that means things like, uh, you know, blogging on your own nights and weekends or volunteering, uh, you know, one day a week for free to help out and shadow somebody or intern somewhere or, uh, volunteering for a charity board. And serving on that board so that it will give you connections and an excuse to uh, deepen your professional skills in certain areas that you want to develop. Uh, you know, you, you do need to be willing to put in that extra unpaid work initially to position yourself to get the thing that you want. Oh, so I think that you should always have a means of a reference point in whatever you even job you're seeking at. If you if you have a blog, you can refer to that. If you have a paper, you've done if you've done some voluntary work, so you need to refer to people using those things that that can be as a launchpad to help you get hooked to the job or the gigs that you want to do. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it it used to be sufficient uh, to just show that you're smart. And say, oh, well, obviously the skills are transferable. You know, here's my philosophy paper that I wrote, and it shows that I'm intelligent. And so clearly, if I'm an intelligent person, I should be able to do work in the advertising industry. That's really not Mm -hmm. sufficient anymore because, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, there was no way that you could have had anything to do with advertising Mm -hmm. unless you were already in it. Now, there's really not an excuse, even if you are completely outside the advertising industry, you can do something to show your interest and to break in. I mean, just as one of my favorite uh, examples, which I actually uh, am citing in my next book that I'm in the process of writing that's coming out next year called Stand Out. <laughs> yeah, um, there's, a, there's a guy named Brian Stelter who now is a reporter on television for CNN. Uh, he used to be a New York Times reporter. And the way that he got his job, I mean, it's very, very hard to, you know, I mean, no one's a reporter anymore. Everybody, including myself, who started as a reporter, got laid off. But this this young guy who's not even 30 has, has you know, he got hired uh, by the New York Times and then got hired away by CNN. And the way that he was able to do this is that on his own, when he was a college student, he started uh, his own website 
uh, focused on the television news industry. And he did it so well and he reported it so thoroughly that, uh, that other reporters turned to him as an expert because no one was doing it as well. And it was literally, it was a hobby. It was something that he was doing for free, but it showed his expertise so dramatically the New York Times came to him. And that's what we're talking about. Wow. That's an exceptional work to be done. Yes. Now let's look at reinventing and rebranding. What are the steps that one needs to take to rebrand or reinvent himself? Yes. So if you want to reinvent yourself, which is the the topic of my first book, um, appropriately enough, called Reinventing You, um, basically there's three main steps that you need to follow. The first one is beginning to get clear on what your current brand is Mm. because you, you can't do a very good job uh, changing to a different brand if you're not fully aware of where you're starting. So it's uh, it's drilling down and kind of clarifying how you're currently known and understood by others. The second mm-hmm. piece is beginning to carve out a proactive vision of how you want to be known. So uh, so that's that's thinking about what's the end vision. And if there is a gap between where you are now and where you want to be, what do you need to do? Whether it's, you know, additional skills training or working on certain elements so that uh, you can close that gap. And then third and finally is what I call living your brand. And basically what that means is that a lot of people think that personal branding is just about like your elevator pitch. Mm. It's just about what you say about yourself. But as you and I know, it is a lot more than that. Your personal brand is literally everything you do and the complete impression that other people get about you as a result of that. So it's not just what you say about yourself, although that's important. It's literally what do people find when they Google you? It's who do you associate with and how does that impact your reputation. It's what kind of leadership groups do you participate in? It's what kind of writing or content have you created? It's, uh, you know, what kind of hobbies do you have or what do you talk about when you're hanging out with people? All of those things factor into living your brand so that in a very cohesive way, you are making sure that you're sending the right message about who you are. Now, I have a question from Macy. She says that, what are your three best rebranding tips? Mm, all right. Three <laughs> best tips. Okay. Yeah. We'll make it actionable right away. Right away. Okay. All right. So number one, this is a tip about discovering, uh, what your brand is right now. What I would suggest to people, which is, which is pretty easy mm-hmm. and fast to do, but very informative is, uh, that you should take about half a dozen people that you know. Mm. These could be friends, colleagues, and go to those people and ask them a quick question. And say, if you only had three words to be able to describe me, what would they be? And that is really useful because very quickly you're going to see patterns in what they say Mm -hmm. about you. And it'll help you understand what to them, what to the outside world is most notable or noteworthy about you. So that can be very informative. Um, The second tip that I would suggest to people is that you should cultivate what I call a wingman. And this comes from research that has been done by a couple of uh, professors that I I really uh, admire, physics school professors, Robert Cialdini of Arizona State and Jeffrey Pfeffer of the Stanford Graduate (laughs) School of Business. 
And their research talked about the importance of having somebody else uh, speaking for you, essentially. Mm-hmm. Because if if you're, you know, talking all the time about your own virtues, uh, you know, that's good a little bit. But but there's kind of a fine line and there's a risk that you may be perceived as a braggart, <laughs> which nobody wants. Um, but the antidote to that is that if you have somebody else that is singing your praises, people will listen and they'll think, oh, wow, this person's amazing. And so I suggest to people that you actually make a deal with a friend of yours, you know, trusted friend. And you say, look, I will talk you up if you talk me up. And uh, and you just make it very symbiotic. And you do that at the next conference or gathering that you're at. And that can really be effective in spreading the word about the good things that you are doing. Uh, so that's tip number two. And then the third tip that I would have is uh, this comes from the research of a gentleman named Ronald Burt, who's a sociologist at the University of Chicago. Um, he talks about he studies networks. And in particular, uh, one thing that intrigued me was his his research into what makes somebody indispensable mm. in a network. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And so he talks about uh, basically, um, you know, I, I call it the hub strategy, which is that if you are the hub of the network, if you are the person who is bridging the gaps between other people that are not connected, you make yourself far more valuable mm-hmm. because these other people are not talking to each other. And if you're the bridge, that means you have access to knowledge, to information, to best practices that other people don't. And so you're able to make things move faster and better. You're the one who says, well, wait a minute, they tried this over in, uh, you know, in this department, maybe we should try that too. And there's very simple ways that you can do it. Uh, one of them that I, that I talk about, uh, in many of my talks is a strategy that I thought was great that a friend of mine tried, hmm. which is that she worked at a very large organization and she decided she would spend one hour a week networking, which does not sound like a lot of time and it's not. I mean, it's very doable. Uh, but she did it in a very simple way, which is that one day a week, she would ask a different person in a different department to lunch. And it's, you know, it's, it's very uh, easy to manage that. But at the end of the year, she, you know, she's able to diversify into so many parts of the organization. She really is that hub. She really is the person who is able to connect uh, silos that don't otherwise communicate. And that, that makes you very valuable. Hmm. I think I like this last bit. Is is I've used that in a couple of times and it's really useful. It's really really works. Really really does. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Another question for you. This this quite interesting question. Narisa asks that how do you pick someone's bro- a broken piece? She's broken mm. from previous job, previous experiences, especially mm. as a lady, back to business mm-hmm. with your brand. How do you do that? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So if you're, if you're feeling, you know, broken, I guess, you know, I'm assuming she means that, uh, that maybe her spirit is a little bit broken, that she's feeling, uh, discouraged about it or, mm-hmm. or things like that. Um, you know, I mean, that, that is, that is a, a hard place to be in. But I, I think that one thing that I really try to emphasize in reinventing you, uh, and this, this isn't always easy, but, mm. but it's, but, you, you need to start with yourself. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, other people take their cues from you. 
And if you seem uncertain about your credibility or your credentials, they're going to look at you and say, oh, well, if, if she's not convinced she's an expert, then why should I be convinced? <laughs> and, and so it becomes a little bit of a vicious circle as a result. And one of the people that I profile in the book um, was an executive coach. And, you know, she's very talented and, and, you know, now she's been in business for 20 years. But when she started her business, she was young. She was in her late 20s and she felt very nervous because she was, uh, consulting for people who were, you know, sometimes, uh, far older than her. And she was afraid that, uh, that people would kind of question her and say, well, you know, you're only 27. What do you, what do you know about my issues as a, as a top executive? And so she actually told me that literally she waited two years after starting her business to send out the introductory email to her friends oh. to let them know that she had <laughs> done it because she was so afraid that they would say, well, you're not qualified. And uh, and she said that one of the things that finally helped her get over it was that she had a friend who was a doctor. And, you know, the friend told her that the doctors and you know this is true for many people but the doctors have a very similar uh feeling sometimes which is that you know one moment you're a medical student and you know you you are expected to know some things but you're you know you're a student you're expected to be a learner you don't have to know everything but then the minute you cross the threshold and you get your diploma it's okay dr jones uh what do i do now and your patients are going to be really scared and really disturbed if you say, oh, gosh, I don't know, I'm not qualified, and you give them that impression. And so uh, Amy Cuddy, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, has a really nice phrase that she uses about this, which uh, she talks about in her very famous TED Talk, which is that it's not precisely fake it until you make it. It's actually fake it until you become it <laughs> that you have to you have to embody that confidence, even if you're not 100 percent sure you feel it. But it, it's part of the act of moving toward the you that you want to be. It's not about being something completely fake and, oh, I'm not this. This is a lie. But it's about moving toward the best version mm. of yourself. And, you know, it's, it can be hard to, to summon that. But if you can begin to make those initial steps, it can, you know, just like it's a, a vicious circle, if you seem confused and uncertain and, you know, are projecting a lack of confidence, it actually is a, a virtuous circle if you start to show confidence because other you'll see soon that other people believe in you as well. Wow. I think this in-depth answer. And, and, and that fake it till you make it, uh, fake it. So it's, it's, it works in another way like a law of attraction that what you, what you focus on, you are gravitating towards because you give you the air to work and put in the materials needed to become what you desire to be. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, you have torrents of questions coming in for you. Uh, there's a question from Blessings. She says that with a lady with rising high to such a stature, in, in society, all that you've done, what were some of your surmounting obstacles that, that you faced and how you overcame it? Really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, of personal obstacles that, uh, that I've faced, I mean, early on, uh, in my career, you know, I'll, I'll say up front that, that part 
I was mentioning, you know, my my interest in uh, in reinvention was because of changing careers a lot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sometimes that was voluntary. Um, you know, for instance, when I was running a nonprofit, uh, an NGO, um, I enjoyed it, but I I then decided after a couple of years that I wanted to go into business for myself. But early on, um, a lot of my career choices were involuntary, and so I. I had to embrace the fact that if I wanted to be successful, I had to adapt. And so just as a quick enumeration of some of my, uh, failures mm-hmm. or, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think of them as, as failures per se because it wasn't necessarily that I did something wrong, but, but it was, it was certainly roadblocks that I had to go around, you know, so number one, um, I actually wanted a career as a as an academic. Uh, I wanted to be a professor, and I had gotten my master's degree, and I had applied for doctoral programs, and uh, I had to abandon that because I uh, I got turned down by every doctoral program that I applied for. So that was really stressful because that was really the only thing that I had wanted to do, and I needed a new plan. So uh, I then got a job as a newspaper reporter. Okay, that was great. That's like a good alternative. And then a year into it, as I mentioned, I got l- laid off and lost my job. Uh, so that's strike number two. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, I worked in politics, which was exciting, and that could have been a good career. Uh, but every single candidate that I worked for, uh, for all of the big races where I was a staffer, uh, ended up losing. Mm. So <laughs> those campaigns ended and those jobs ended and I had to find something else. So, uh, so very early in my career, I mean, literally before age 25, I, um, I had three potential careers that I had settled on, all of which had crashed and burned in some mm. way. And so I think that that early experience of having those setbacks uh, was actually useful to me in terms of teaching the kind of resiliency and flexibility that you need to uh, to understand that, you know, if if this doesn't work out, something else will, and you just have to be willing to continue looking for it. Great. Something is, is, it's, it's good to hear from people who have achieved a lot when you share their, their what we might call as failures or their challenges. It's always more when inspiring because it means that, okay, he did it, she did it, she failed, or she had some challenges. I can also uh, and do fill your way to success. I think Les Brown made that statement. Yes. Eno asked, what has been your guiding principles in life and in branding? My guiding principles in life and in branding. Yes. I, I think that um, if I had to pick one, mm-hmm. um, I would... I would say that, you know, and this is something that, that people talk about a lot. I mean, perhaps they talk about it even to the, to the point where it's gotten to be a, a sort of stock answer, but, um, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by it okay. is, uh, is authenticity. And what I mean by that specifically is that, um, you know, you, you hear a lot that, oh, if you're, uh, you know, it, 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 personal branding won't work if it's not authentic and, and things like that. And, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, you also, the knock on personal branding, the criticism of personal branding mm-hmm. by people who are not believers in it, by people who are resistant, is that they assume that it is some sort of exercise in fakery and that people are just trying to make themselves look good mm. in a generic way and that it's all about kind of fooling people into thinking you're awesome. Uh, and so, you know, I, I definitely push back against that. But for me, what it means in terms of authenticity is that it is personally very important to me 
And the reason that I, that I do this, that I, you know, talk about it, uh, and, you know, hopefully try to through, you know, through things like my book, Reinventing You, um, try to convey to people how they can do personal branding better and more effectively is that I really believe in a world where you should not have to homogenize yourself. Mm. Um, <laughs> you should not have to play by other people's rules and be how they want you to be or how you think they want you to be. Um, I am really interested in a world where people can be themselves and let other people know, you know what, this is who I am and this is how I add value. And if you don't like it, too bad <laughs> because because my results speak for themselves and I have the confidence to be able to say, I don't need to let you be the judge of who I am. You need to accept me for who I am. I think that's really uh, an empowering thing. And if more people embrace that, I think the world would, would be a better place because we would be less judgmental toward other people and we would be less paranoid about ourselves and what other people think about us. So that's, that's what I'm trying to hopefully get across. That's the, that's the world I would like to live in. Wow. Beautiful world. Now let's look at standouts. What are some of the core principles in standouts? A lot of people are going to blogging, social media, podcasts, they come in noisy out of time and a lot of things and only few are at the cream of affairs and making it. How do we stand out? Yes. Yeah, it is becoming more and more essential these days because as you uh, indicated, on one hand, it's, it's easier than ever to create things that, you know, go out into the universe. But as more and more people do it, uh, getting noticed for that is the hard part. Mm. So I basically what I talk about in the book is there's two main phases. Uh, the first is the fact, you know, how do you actually create these breakthrough ideas? And so I talk about patterns in terms of how people do it because I write about people who are thought leaders in their fields and then essentially try to reverse engineer the process by which they got famous and, mm. uh, you know, and their ideas got famous and explain some of the, the key underlying principles. And then this, the second part is that, of course, you have to build a following around your idea because if you don't do that, you know, if no one ever knows about it, um, this, you know, it's a, it's like an ivory tower kind of thing that, um, it's, you know, it's, it's nice, but it's not going to change the world if people are not aware of it. So just some examples, uh, for the first part in terms of how do you create mm -hmm. your thought leading idea? I talk about, uh, you know, one, one key way to do it is I talk about combining ideas and how you can, uh, really get some interesting innovations by bringing them together. So I profile a guy, for instance, named Eric Schott, who uh, here in New York, where I am, is a very prominent biologist. And what's interesting about him is that he trained as a mathematician and a computer scientist and only moved into biology uh -oh. later on in his career. Uh, but it, it has uniquely equipped him for the modern era in biology using big data because he's comfortable with... Uh, with numbers and large data sets in a way that most biologists who have been trained traditionally are not. So bringing in outside perspectives, kind of being a renaissance person, is one of the ways that you can be successful and develop really groundbreaking ideas. Um, you know, just as a, another example, I talk about the importance of what I call codifying systems. And mm -hmm. so uh, I profile Robert Cialdini, 
who some of you may have heard of, uh, and who I was mentioning earlier as, uh, the uh, the the person who inspired the wingman theory, mm-hmm. and Cialdini wrote a very famous book called Influence: The Psychology of Persuasion, and in it he identifies in a really sort of definitive way. He was the first person who did this. Uh, the six principles of influence, and mm-hmm. uh, he lays out, you know, how do you persuade someone? Here's how. Here's the six components, and when you frame something like that, when you take a mysterious phenomenon and you codify it so that all of a sudden it makes sense. Anytime people are talking about persuasion, literally from that point on, they're going to cite Chaldini. Mm. And if you do that for your field or for your niche, then you can similarly become a touchstone. So those are some of the ways that you can really begin to stand out with your ideas. Oh, I think brilliant concepts. Okay, I think uh, last question that I have for you. Person is looking at as a musician, artist. There are so many artists and uh, varieties of genres. How do you? brand and stand out as a musician in a particular set? Mm. So so uh, branding and standing out as a musician. musician. Yeah. So I think that there's there's a few different ways that you can do it. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, you know, for, for anybody in any field, there's there's sort of the, the minimum level of qualification, which is that, you know, we assume you're a good musician, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the skills have to be... Uh, adequate to excellence. Um, so, but as long as you have that, then the next step is, all right, well, how do you get noticed beyond that? And so that actually ties in, uh, in a lot of ways to the second part of my book that I was mentioning, which is how do you build a following around your ideas? And so, um, what I would say is that for a lot of musicians, and this is true in literally almost every field, people, people are good at the thing that they do, and they think that that is sufficient. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, well, I'm just going to be such an amazing musician that everybody's going to notice me. And, I mean, possibly that's true if you are literally the best musician in the entire world. But for almost everybody else, even if you are a very, very, very good musician, that's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where you can excel is if you are better at building that following. So what are some of the ways that you can do it? Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, I would say a lot of musicians really fail uh, to capture data about their fans and to uh, to be effective in mobilizing them. So if you have a, a better data capture system, you know, on your website, are you collecting email addresses at your concerts? Do you have a sign-up sheet where people can sign up for your e-newsletter? Maybe you give them something free as an incentive to get them to sign up for your newsletter, like a free MP3 of a song that you can only get by signing up for your e-newsletter. If you incentivize people that way, if you build your list, you communicate regularly and in interesting ways with your fans, uh, that can be useful. I mean, you think about musicians like Amanda Palmer, who uh, I'm not sure how well known she is in Africa, but in the U.S. she's very famous. She has, you know, a million-plus followers on Twitter. She gave a very uh, famous TED Talk, which you can access on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she has really used Twitter... Uh, in a very dramatic way to build connections with her fans and build a following, which led to her getting over a million dollars on Kickstarter for her newest album. Um, so just that kind of loyalty. Maybe it's having special events. Maybe you can do a house party concert for VIP fans or, you know, just special ways to build that bond and tighten it and to turn your fans into, uh, you know, sort of viral evangelists for your music. 
Those are the ways, person to person, that you can cultivate loyalty and build a following so that you get recognized. One of the things from uh, Seth Godin's uh, perspective of a purple cow and a little thing is like doing something that is, um, on that way it might be said, everything great idea is almost like is weird. So do something which is almost weird to be out of what people are doing ordinarily to be able to attract attention for the little things as a musician, as an artist, as an author. Like what things are you doing differently from the others that can attract and keep engaging your fans? I think recently, uh, this artist, what's her name? I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, she created an iTunes app. Kim, yeah, Kim. Mm, okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar From, yeah, with that, yeah, yeah. but, but it, she, she, it, but it sounds like a, like a really good idea. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right, Bernard, that, uh, you know, as Seth Godin and others talk about, you know, the, the purple cow idea, the fact that if you're do, doing something just really different than other people, it's uh, it's really a way to to stand out and, and to get noticed, uh, just you know, sort of shocking people into the recognition that oh wow, something something interesting is going on here. Um, it, it really does become incredibly memorable. Okay, lastly, we've come uh, very far. Does Brandon ever end? Ah, yeah. Can you ever sort of sit back on your laurels? <laughs> um, so I would say yes and no. Um, and what I mean by that is that the, I think, uh, you know, to quote another business book, there is a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you invest early on, if you, if you get well known enough for whatever your contribution is, there is always going to be a certain level of, uh, recognition that, that you have and consequently a benefit that you can derive from it. I mean, for example, just to take a really prosaic uh, example, um, you think about people who are uh, like child stars on television, right? And, you know, they did something when they were like eight years old and they were famous, you know, on TV. And now 30 years later, um, so, you know, some of them have continued to evolve mm-hmm. and grow as artists. Some of them haven't, but they can still get money for uh, public appearances. They can still get on reality TV shows because everybody says, Oh, Danny Bonaducci. I remember him from the Partridge mm. family. And you know, it's it, it, so once, once you're famous enough, once you're in people's consciousness to a certain extent, you can, uh, rest on those laurels. You don't have to brand yourself. I mean, that being said, people don't necessarily think that positively about Danny Bonaducci because it is a little sad that, you know, Oh, okay. Well, the guy, you know, yeah, it would be interesting to meet the guy, maybe, but he hasn't really done anything that is incredibly noteworthy or positive in the past 30 plus years. Um, so so it's it's a it's a limited brand. You know, you don't mm-hmm. it's like you can be like a one hit wonder kind of thing. Um, but if you want if you want to do it right, then I would say um, the answer is that work very hard to get known upfront for something and then try you don't have to work as hard later on but try to continue being in the game and try to continue evolving and so as an example uh one of the people that i interviewed for standout is uh tom peters author of the very famous uh in search of excellence uh you know one of the most popular business books of the 1980s and uh he was extremely famous for that and so, you know, to this day, now, you know, 30 plus years later, everybody who follows business very closely knows who Tom Peters is. Exactly. But, um, but, you know, he also, 
when I talked to him about those early days, he says he was giving about 125 speeches a year and he was traveling all, all over the world oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, it was just incredibly intense. And, uh, so, you know, he, he was killing himself doing it. He no longer has to do that. But, you know, here's the guy, he's in his seventies now and he's on Twitter and he's interacting and engaging with people on Twitter. And so he's continuing to be part of the dialogue. Um, you know, he, he doesn't have to be flying to Cleveland every other thing, but he, he is, uh, staying involved and contributing his ideas in, I think, a very positive way. Great. So where can one connect with you for other resources and other materials? And Yeah, thank you. Well, if people would like more information, my website is doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K. And I have on the website more than 400 free articles and over 160 podcast interviews. So there's uh, a lot of material there for people who would like it. Uh, I also have a uh, an email list that people can subscribe to, speaking of email lists. And I'm on Twitter, at Dory Clark. And my books, uh, they're available on Amazon and other places. Stand Out, which is available for pre-order, and Reinventing You, which people can get in their hands instantly. Great. And I've, I've listened to a couple of your interviews almost everywhere I can find them. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Great. So, Dory, thank you so much for this information shared with their audience. Thanks for listening. I want you to go to Amazon.com and get my latest book on personal branding. That is Rebrand, the ultimate guide to personal branding. Get a copy for yourself and for someone else. The book is Rebrand, the ultimate guide to personal branding. The best is yours.